the future is not going to be a single database, right? Even for a single application. The future for kind of data workloads is evolving rapidly. As applications become more modern and richer, the front-end team needs to work really quickly. So that's the most important team that you need to empower. And for that setup, this Jamstack setup works better. The Jamstack ecosystem is also evolving to kind of move a little more towards this edge style rather than just be entirely on the application device itself. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to the installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we've got Tanmai Gopal. Tanmai, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. How are you? Excellent. And you are co-founder, CEO of Hasura. So... Do you want to tell us why you're here and uh, what you're up to at Hasura? Awesome, yeah. I'm one of the co-founders at Hasura. I started Hasura just about uh, three years ago now. I'm, I'm the CEO and I had product as well. I mean, we started Hasura to kind of solve what we saw as one of the critical problems in making application development faster, which is the data access problem. And we leverage a lot of GraphQL for doing that. And so if you think about kind of what Hasura is, Hasura is a solution that gives you an instant GraphQL API across your data sources and across pieces of logic that you have. And so Hasura kind of helps you convert that data and logic that you have in your domain to a GraphQL API that then developers can use, you know, internal or external developers can use to, you know, build stuff with, which is the purpose of all of the work that we're all doing, right? So that's kind of where Hasura is. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And um, so you were on a previous podcast, actually episode 35, uh, and probably 2018, a couple years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about the GraphQL stuff, but you've done a lot since... 2018. So I'd love to know uh, what's new in Hasura since then. Yeah, yeah, lots of uh, tremendous amount of work underneath. And what we've been doing, I think, mainly is gearing up for adding support for multiple databases. Back when we chatted last, we used to have support for um, Postgres as a primary data store. Now we've added support for SQL Server, MySQL, BigQuery, you know, distributed versions of Postgres so that you can do geo-distributed workloads or sharded workloads like you know, Citus, Hyperscale, Yugabyte. Cockroach is coming in soon as well. So that's kind of been the main main piece of work underneath, which is to make sure that we can um, handle multiple kinds of databases. And the other piece of work has been also launching our cloud solution, which we've creatively called Hasura Cloud. And so Hasura Cloud is a managed service offering, which adds uh, certain things that are kind of unique to being able to manage Hasura as a service for our users. So for example, things like caching, you know, auto-scaling, incident monitoring because Hasura is kind of connecting to a lot of critical systems, right? So that's those have kind of been the two main areas of work. Something we launched just recently in our annual conference just a few weeks ago at HasuraCon is the ability to do cross-database joins, which is just amazing. It's an exciting problem, of course, from a technical point of view that you can kind of join data into different databases, you know, Postgres, Postgres, or Postgres SQL Server, you know, whatever combination you have. Uh, you can kind of join across them and fetch data simultaneously. And that's, I think, been an amazing piece of work, you know, especially from kind of a performance point of view, where you're able to kind of fetch data from these multiple sources because it's it's a hard problem to solve. And especially if you kind of think about this, uh, you know, kind of that federation approach, you think about you can have one API that talks to two APIs that themselves talk to a database each. 
right? And then the Hasura approach is a little bit different, which says we'll federate on the databases directly. So you have one API that's kind of talking to two databases simultaneously. And that's kind of, you know, apart from kind of the tech problems, which are very interesting to solve there, because, you know, they're fundamentally different kinds of databases. How do you even do performance joins, right? Yeah. The very interesting thing is that we're kind of, especially since, you know, the last time we chatted and we've been seeing this kind of becoming more apparent, is the future is not going to be a single database, right? The future, even for a single application, the future for kind of data workloads is evolving rapidly. And what's happening is that people kind of really like having different sources of their data and logic, which are kind of optimized for certain kinds of workloads. You know, let's say you're building some kind of a messaging or chat kind of functionality or application, right? You'll have parts of your application that would come from, you know, a transactional store, right? But when you think about like the messages or events, right, that you're storing, that needs to go into a different kind of database, right? Because the kinds of queries, the volume of data, right, the amount of ingestion that you need to have is different. So it's the same application. And it's semantically or conceptually the same API, but you do need two different data workloads to kind of scale that and optimize kind of your workload, right? And and this is just kind of increasing, right? Because the database industry is also just doing amazing work and there's all kinds of stuff happening. But even from a Jamstack point of view, when we think about it, there's, you have kind of like the CMS ecosystem, right? And you have like this transaction data, you have time series data, and you have you have so many different places that you're kind of getting information from that you need to be able to kind of join in a sense, right? To kind of make sense of it as a unified kind of semantic API or, or data graph or whatever you want to call it. That uh, I think that's been really, really interesting to kind of both see that change in the ecosystem and also kind of work uh, and build the technology that makes those kinds of things possible. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's interesting that you you mentioned um the feature is multiple databases and not just one. Because I know I've, I've been at companies where I built on the monolith and we had the one database that talked to all the different flavors of the application. Right. And, uh, you know, if you make a mistake and you got to roll back, you, you're making mistakes across like multiple instances. So if a user is yep. touching this data and touching that data yep. uh, and you corrupted the user, now you've got corruption through the entire through and through. But I find it really intriguing, though, because it, it having a separate database for a different use case or a different flavor of the product is intriguing because you can, one, you can sandbox, you can iterate without worrying about taking down the entire system. Yep. But two, it really leans into what the Jamstack, it's sort of like mantra and being able to, you know, if you don't want to have everything deeply coupled together, yep. you can also decouple your uh, your database from what you're working on. Exactly, exactly, right. And the... And the what you're working on here is almost like the what kind of data you're working on. You know, one of the reasons why people really like Jamstack is that they're just able to kind of conceptualize these layers that they'll have in their application, and they're able to kind of choose for each layer, right, the best of breed kind of software or technology or stack that they want to use, right? Like, I want to use this particular stack because this is kind of my application, right? It's a static application that I can update periodically, right? But it's largely static or it's mostly dynamic, right? Or it's catering heavily to mobile workloads and it needs to be super performant and lightweight, right? And we see this massive fragmentation in the kind of JavaScript framework ecosystem because all of these frameworks are amazing because they're all kind of geared towards slightly different sweet spots, right? And because you've decoupled your API layer, you're able to focus on choosing the best framework that you want for your users that will give you the best experience, right? And very similarly to that, when we think about kind of the backend portions of it, right? Now you have the API and the data layer, and you want to kind of make the same choice 
for your data layer, right? You want to choose the best place to keep certain parts of your data, right? Whether it's images or video or, you know, fast moving events, right? Transactional things, analytical things, right? It's the data is just exploding and the kinds of solutions that you have are also exploding. Very similar to kind of what's happening in the JavaScript framework ecosystem, right? So it's, it's really interesting to see that and, you know, help be the middle layer that allows the best choices to happen on either ends of the spectrum, right? The data layer and the JavaScript layer, but then provide that kind of uh, sanity by having a unified API in the middle, right? Yeah, and what's interesting about having those choices too as well that you mentioned, not only were you originally working with Postgres and making that really seamless in interactions, but also you added MySQL as well as BigQuery. Right. I'm curious, is that now, have you seen your the adoption curve like pick up now that you have options for other folks and their what their decisions and choices are? Yep, yep, yep. So we've announced reviews for some of the new databases that we've been working on, and it's just been, the feature set is not, at parity with where Postgres is. Yeah. Uh, but even with the initial kind of feature sets that we have, which is say read-only on these new databases that we're supporting before we start adding writes and events and stuff like that, that adoption has been phenomenal, especially for production workloads, right? It's just been amazing. You know, BigQuery was a very interesting database for us to add because it's our first analytical database, right? We were thinking about kind of transactional databases so far. Now we're thinking about analytical databases where you're just storing a order of magnitude kind of two orders of magnitude, larger amounts of data. And it was very interesting for us to see that because typically when you're thinking about like, let's do Jamstack, right? The kinds of databases that people usually think about are, you know, Postgres and MySQL and Mongo, right? That's roughly where the minds of folks is at, right? And it was just very interesting to see that pick up with in the OLAP space because there's just so much data that people kind of want to analyze and use and build dashboards off, right? You know, data is increasingly just becoming a product. And that data is often in these analytical stores. And so making that accessible, you know, securely, performantly, safely is really valuable, right? So it's just been tremendous to see that over the last few months. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even the last couple of years, like, I mean, you mentioned Cockroach as well as another flavor of mm-hmm. databases, very familiar to a lot of folks, but slightly different mm-hmm. in the approach and how you interact with it. And mm-hmm. like, I'm seeing a lot more database startups uh, start with like their flavor coming from open source projects, actually. It's really where right. this has all been centralized from. And uh, I'm liking the the pattern of adopting these other solutions because like, if I know how to use Hursura, but I don't want to sort of build my own interactions and databases and being able to like have my own like SQL pancake. Right. I love the fact that I can leverage these tools and then it's familiar for the entire team across the board. Exactly. Uh, so I, I like where you're going and I totally get it as well. Some other things that uh, that's come up uh, when it comes to like some of these solutions or things like caching and scaling and security. Do you want to speak on some of those updates and changes? Yeah, of course. I think caching's kind of been one of the most exciting things we've been working on. It's not an easy problem, right? It's like, you know, they say there's a two hard problems in computer science, right? Caching and naming things and then offset by one problems, right? So I think the when we think about kind of an application, like even a Jamstack application, right? When we think about the API in the middle, right? It's kind of a means to an end, right? It's this necessary thing that needs to exist so that people can you know build applications. But at the core of it, what you really want is access to that domain's data and logic, right? So when people kind of build these APIs, right? And especially as applications start scaling, and scaling can happen in many different kinds of ways. It doesn't have to mean, you know, just quote-unquote web scale, uh, but, you know, whether you're scaling by users, by functionality, by just workload, right? One of the problems that 
is a huge time sink for people to solve for, right, is the caching problem. Because it requires just a tremendous amount of, in our opinion, unnecessary expertise to build, right? Because what happens is that, and especially for dynamic data, right? Caching for static data and what CDNs have done over the last decade or two is amazing, right? And how that ecosystem itself is evolving is amazing. But it works largely for static content, right? Or for static data. Caching for dynamic data, right? Or transactional data is a hard problem. And it's a painful problem, right? You, If you think about it from the point of view of the developer, they just want it to work, right? They don't care. They just want it to work, right? And Hasura is kind of at that right layer where we understand the kind of APIs, the data access, how data is laid out, you know, what the different security rules for different pieces of data are, right? Like you're accessing an event, but you can only access it if you have a ticket to have bought the event, right? You're accessing a document, but you can only access the document if it's public or if it's in your organization or whatever. There's rules, right? But every time, you know, let's say, for example, on this event platform, you have like 100,000 users that just suddenly came on to access this event. Because of their ticket, they need access to the event. So you need this caching information to cache this dynamic data that describes the event. But this caching information, this caching policy needs to be aware of how people are accessing that data, right? And who has access to this. And this is just painful to set up because you have to build it, you have to write it by hand, you have to operationally you have to think about scaling it, deploying caches, cache invalidation, right? There's a whole set of things there. And we've made kind of really good, interesting kind of foundational work on automating that piece entirely, right? So that as a developer, you don't have to think about or worry about how stuff gets cached, right? Or what is cached and how to and worrying about caching at all, right? You have an API, if you want it to be cached, it just gets cached. And even if it's dynamic data, even if it's private data, right, it just works. And I think because of solving that caching piece, this now becomes a really important part of kind of making this whole API process self-serve, right? Because the reason why these APIs are hard to kind of maintain, deploy, manage, operate, and there's a whole cycle of people talking to each other to deploy an API and scale an API, one of those big problems there is, you know, just thinking about like, how will we do caching? And if we automate that, then developers are just free to build stuff again, right? They're like, hey, here's my data. Here's where I want it to be. Here's how it's laid out. Here's the access control rules for it. And here's me. Here's my application. And I'm building this application. And the API just works, right? And you don't have to care whether it's a, you have 10 users on your application, you have a million users on your application, whether it's dynamic data or static data. So I think that's really, really powerful for our users. Yeah, that is awesome too as well. And like, Having multiple databases, in my thought, like multiple points of failure, multiple opportunities for security risk, like how are we combating against things like that? Yep, that's a really good question, right? Because again, when we think about security, and again, at this layer, which is just so critical because all your data has to be accessed through it, right? There's a variety of different problems around security, right? So like, for example, the first aspect of security is just application authorization kind of security, right? Which is what users get access to what data. Right. This is kind of a part of your authorization business logic, right? This is like I was talking about, right? Like you get access to an event if certain conditions are met. You get to read an article if this is your fifth article, right? And you're a, a user that's not logged in, right? And your sixth article you can't read. That's one part of the security piece, right? Which is something that we've had as a part of the Hasura product, this authorization policy engine, which handles that. But then especially, and to your point, as you start thinking about multiple data sources, right, it's not just the authorization logic that we want to make sure we've, we've done well, but you start kind of thinking about other aspects of API security, like it becomes easier, especially with GraphQL, to do an deliberate or an accidental denial of service attack, 
right? Which is what if you kind of ran this query to fetch data where it's fetching it from multiple sources, one of the sources is really slow, right? Or the nature of this query just makes it so complex that the underlying database just, you know, freaks out, right? It, it can't handle that load, right? It just crumbles and dies, right? That's kind of that other aspect to API security, which is not linked to your application's logic, but it's kind of security that you have to worry about, especially if you start kind of moving towards production and you start scaling, right? And there we've kind of done some amazing work, again, getting inspiration from the database ecosystem, but really bringing that to the API layer. Uh, one of the most exciting pieces of work there. Now, so there's typical stuff, right? There's rate limiting and allow listing and things like that. But I think one of the most exciting things there has been what we call operation timeouts. So it's kind of like having a cost wallet, right? So that your API consumers depending on their session, their role, right? Who the API consumer is, right? It's a logged in user, not logged in user, enterprise, tenant, whoever. That particular session has almost a quota of compute and time that they can run on an API. So you tell them that you can do whatever you want. You can access whatever API you want, but you have a quota, right? Of compute and time that you spend and you can't cross that. And what Hasura does and what we've kind of built out there is this ability to say that we measure that quota. And if that quota is crossed, we're able to kill execution both in the API layer and in the data layer. And this is really nice because normally when people think about this kind of, I don't want to have an API call that runs longer than a second, right? So the way that you think about it is that your CDN, your API gateway, or your API server will just time out, right? And it'll just kind of say, well, we're killing the connection because we've crossed a second or we've crossed 30 seconds, right? So this API call can't run. The problem with that is that the poor database is still processing this query because nobody told the database that you have to stop processing this long-running query, right? And it ran by mistake. Like, please stop running it because if the database keeps running it, it's going to just kill all of the other consumers, right, that need to access data. And it's a massive quality of service risk. And so what Hasura can do is maintain that quota on that API execution time, not just for users and handle that inside the API layer, but also pass the right signals to those upstream data sources and databases and tell them to kill their execution as well. So if you set a 500 millisecond per request quota, then if it crosses 500 milliseconds, Hasura will kill that execution everywhere, right? And this now becomes another massively important building block in thinking about making those APIs self-serve, right? Now you can really start thinking about it as saying, I want to have this amazing Jamstack application. I want to have my developers use the best stack possible and just go forth and build stuff. And I want to provide all of the infrastructure that makes this completely self-serve, right? And so one part of that problem was, can we let the front-end development team build an application, deploy an application, and own that entire life cycle without affecting the back-end? And that was amazing with Jamstack, because now you're not coupling that API layer to the UI layer, right? You're able to own that independently. But another part of building this application is to say, can I make my API self-serve? So that no matter what the developers do, you know, they're running a small experiment, they're iterating quickly, whatever they do, my infrastructure, my critical infrastructure, my critical data is protected and will keep working, right? So now you can really just go and tell your developers, go to whatever is fine. Nothing bad will happen. That's just amazing power, right? That's kind of, it's just the logical next step for people building Jamstack applications. Am I making sense? Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense too as well. Like I, I'm just sort of having flashbacks of my earlier, uh, when, when I was doing full-time engineering at Netlify doing Jamstack integrations, like having the confidence of saying, I'm going to make this button work in the way it's going to work, but I'm going to talk to this endpoint and I'm not going to have to worry about, you know, yep. 
all the stuff that happens at the back end that's owned by the infrastructure team, by the back end team. Yep. And I can just sort of move on with my life, but also yep. prototype different features and sandbox them and have them behind feature flags without exactly. you know, having data bleeding into production and people now sniffing it out and saying, oh, it looks like this feature is going to be shipped because when I looked at the database call <laughs> randomly, I saw this little uh, endpoint or whatever. And that yep. now we were able to protect against that too as well. Yep. And this is the reason why you know, it's always easy to start building a new application. And then as you're kind of iterating on stuff, things just start slowing down, right? And especially for applications that become more and more mission critical, right? It's like when we think about, you know, enterprise and we're like, oh, enterprise is so slow. I mean, there's a reason they're slow because they have to be slow. There's so many challenges and there's so much operational risk, right? To being able to iterate quickly. It is just hard for them to say iterate quickly, right? Because if they make one mistake, it's either downtime or a data security risk for like millions of customers, right? For like super critical information. And you don't want that to happen, right? So this is this becomes a really important building block for them to say, risk-free experiments, go do whatever you need to do, experiment, sandbox, prototype, prototype in production, and nothing bad will happen, right? Which is awesome. Yeah. And another thing that's awesome is this the evolution of the Jamstack as you touched on. So I wanted to actually pick your brain as we're winding down the conversation of like, where do you think the Jamstack is heading? Because like we're now seeing a lot of maturity in the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing companies announce VC rounds and that are associated with the Jamstack, and mm-hmm. we see a lot mm-hmm. of companies too as well that um, are now pointing fingers at the Jamstack and combating against it, and mm-hmm. like why it's not working and mm-hmm. why their solution is better. Where do you see the Jamstack going in the next like, five to ten years? Yeah, that's a very good question. I have some interesting, maybe occasionally counterintuitive thoughts, but I think the Jamstack concept and what it kind of envisions for team productivity and the nature of the application, I think that will stay. And I think that's probably the way applications are going to be built this entire decade at least, right? And the reason why that's happening and why that will be the case and other approaches will lose out is because fundamentally the focus that Jamstack has is a focus on kind of team productivity. And it solves not even a technical challenge, but really a process and a mindset challenge that says, here's a team, how do we make it independent, right? It's kind of the whole microservices versus monolith conversation, right? And it's how like when the microservices ecosystem started taking off, right? And over the last well, more 10, 15 years than 15, 20 years has really been accelerating nonstop, right? And you just see so much innovation in the microservices ecosystem. There's so much tooling there, so many vendors there, so much cloud vendor stuff there, right? And a lot of engineers kind of look at microservices and are like, nah, nah, it's just the wrong way to do it. You've over-microserviced it, right? They should have been a monolith. Let's return to the monolith, right? And everybody keeps saying return to the monolith, but it's just impossible to do for most people at scale, right? Very few companies can pull that off. It's just very hard to do because the process and team challenge around the monolith, that's really the problem. It's really hard to hold somebody accountable to, from business point of view or product point of view to say, I want you to build quickly. I want you to ship quickly. And I don't want risk, right? I don't want operational risk. And I want like security risk. I want that to happen. That becomes hard with the monolith, right? Because the project is really large. And like you said, right, I might have a kind of data workload that doesn't work. And one mistake on this part of the database bleeds into another part of the application or for other features that are being worked on. And that really hurts productivity. And it's that similar kind of evolution right? Is that similar analog, but focused on the front-end ecosystem, which says, here we have a front-end team, let's just make their entire lifecycle independent, and let's get them to be productive. And so I think that works really well. Now, when we see 
kind of these more full stack frameworks or return to rails right or a lot of people who talk about why is there a rails for javascript there should be rails for javascript we need to have a rails for javascript and we want to return back to kind of a full stack world where the server is rendering templating everything and then sending that to the front end right i think the evolution of the jamstack to move applications towards the edge where the edge is a combination of a little bit of what's happening on the cloud right quote unquote server side and the application device itself i think that's kind of the future of the jamstack but i don't think we'll make a return to full stack development because that productivity is really kind of geared towards individual productivity right not team productivity because as applications become more modern and richer the team is actually the front end team right the front end team needs to work really quickly they need to iterate fast they're listening to business request 24/7 right they're adding value to users so that's the most important team that you need to empower and for that setup this jamstack setup works better compared to other approaches but that said i think the jamstack ecosystem is also evolving to kind of move a little more towards this edge style rather than just be entirely on the application device itself right so i think that's kind of the evolution that's happening but i think the full stack thing and the rails for javascript or the rails for javascript doesn't exist because the ecosystem has moved on we just have a different number of developers today and a different kind of application stack that we need to make productive and that's why we don't have a rails for javascript right it's not a technology problem it's not like it's impossible to build a rails for javascript it's not an ecosystem problem the nodejs ecosystem is arguably larger much larger than the rails ecosystem it's not that it's just that the ecosystem has moved on needs have moved on teams have moved on right so that's the way i think about it yeah the ending point about teams have moved on is actually completely like yeah of course that's that makes a lot of sense because i think when we had rails mm-hmm. or we had Django and everything else, like all the full stack monolithic frameworks, uh, really take off. Yep. We were all building very similar applications. Uh, like it was essentially a Reddit clone or a Twitter clone. Yep. And that's what we were learning on and our, our to do app. Yep. And I think we don't need full end to end login functionality. Like there are now these one off tools that we're leveraging exactly. for this situation. There are these plugins that we're leveraging uh, built in JavaScript or an Electron that don't need the Twitter treatment or the authentication through. And, and I, I stayed authentication because I, I did the Rails guides and that's how I learned how to code. It's going through that. You built a Twitter clone right? and it shows you how to do like blogs and upvote and stuff like that and like and reply. And it's an amazing way to learn how to build an app. But I don't know, like if you look at TikTok, like would I really need that same sort of understanding for the idea of TikTok and how the algorithm works. Yep. And uh, though TikTok does have some flavors and remember it's from Twitter, a different playground. It's a different place that people are trying to leverage and everybody's trying to innovate exactly. and move forward. And as you're trying to innovate and move forward, you do want to have what we were talking about before, being able to have your own database for this one innovation, but not mess up the existing thing that's paying the bills and creating funding. Exactly. So yeah, I'm right right there with you. I honestly really enjoyed this conversation. Unfortunately, we got to wind this down. But the best part about this is we get to transition into picks. So these are jam picks, things that we're, we're jamming on. Could be music, food, technology related. And uh, why don't I go first? Because I've got a pick I want to talk about. Speaking of decentralization and stuff like that, I've been doing this. Uh, I have a newsletter, Live, And uh, in that newsletter, I've always added like content. I'm, I've created videos, blog posts, etc. And uh, I've noticed that my list is long. Like I just do a lot of stuff. So whether it's like a talk or this podcast gets published, I throw it into my newsletter. And uh, what's been challenging is trying to figure out, I don't need to put everything in there, but I need to know what to put in there. So instead, 
I've started using this tool called Polywork. I think it's still in beta as of the recording of this podcast. And it gives me that same sort of thing, being able to list the stuff I worked on, things I want to talk about. But not necessarily like I don't want to tweet every single time I write a blog post or tweet every time a, a video is uploaded to YouTube. Because I feel like on Twitter, I've already built an audience and a brand over there. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like me promoting the things I've created. So I've always needed a place to talk about what I've created. And um, Polyworks become that place now. And it was a thing that I wanted to actually embed into my own blog uh, and my own website. And I just never got around to it. And they've already jumped the gun, gave me a place where I could just upload a post talk about you know the behind the scenes and what my approach was and stuff like that. And it's become a, a great place. So much that I think more and more people are starting to figure out it exists. So I'm really intrigued. As I talk about, we don't need another Twitter. Um, Polywork kind of looks very familiar to Twitter, but kind of different. I'm looking forward to seeing what features they ship. I think what it really is, is probably going to be a replacement for LinkedIn for me in the future, where I can connect to other DevRel folks, other engineers, and sort of follow closely to some of their side projects as opposed to, you know the pizza they had last night and stuff like that. So definitely looking forward to uh, seeing the evolution of that product. And if anybody needs an invite, just hit me up. I think I have a couple invites left. Or if not, you can probably find an invite for someone else you follow on Twitter as well. That's awesome. I'm going to check out Polywork. It looks amazing. So super interesting. My picks on a bunch of the stuff that we were talking about and some of the stuff that we're doing, you know, of course, do follow me on Twitter at Tamago or Hasra at Hasra HQ. So there's a great number of deep dives that we're doing into some of those topics that we were talking about today. Otherwise, my picks on the reading front, I've been lately reading a lot of interesting science fiction fantasy by an author called N.K. Jemsen. She's just amazing, amazing work. Very different in kind of the characters, the people, the settings to what we saw in kind of books that we grew up with. So it's really interesting. And then on the flip side, I've been rereading a lot of P.G. Woodhouse, uh, which is very dated now, but still super funny. So that's been what I've been up to. Excellent. Yeah, it's always nice to get a, like a read-in, especially during the summertime where I've been lucky enough that GitHub is now, we're taking off Fridays for the summer. So I honestly forgot that Friday was off this week. I was like already prepared with like what I was going to be working on this week and then realized I only had four days to get everything accomplished. But I'm looking forward to that because everything's, you know, stuff kind of slows down a little bit as people take vacations and take their weeks off. So having the Friday off makes it so much easier for me to plan around some of my leisure time. So I've got a couple books in the hopper on my Audible. Actually, random extra pick. I've actually taken up gardening very recently. So uh, I've recently moved into a new place and we inherited a lemon tree, an apricot tree, and a plum tree. And um, we happened to move in the week the apricots were blooming. And then we've spent there a couple of weeks to actually get a harvest. And I honestly never ate a lot of, never had any apricots, to be quite honest. And uh, now I'm a fan. <laughs> so I made jam. Um, we definitely froze a couple, like quite a few, and uh, going to be making some other stuff as well in the future. So I'm just learning all about apricots at the moment until the plums start coming in. That's, that's super fun. Excellent. Well, this was a super fun conversation. Tamai, thank you so much for catching us up with Hasura. Folks, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 